0: hello and welcome to the northern agenda podcast coming to you from reach the people behind the manchester evening news newcastle chronicle and yorkshire live if you want to know what's going on in northern politics from a northern perspective and outside the westminster bubble you're in the right place this is the second episode of our weekly podcast taking a longer look at some of the issues we tackle in the northern agenda newsletter which drops into your inbox every weekday just before lunchtime i'm northern agenda editor rob parsons and as september turns into october and temperatures start to drop where I am in Leeds. I must admit it's only a matter of time before I bite the bullets and turn on the central heating. But in the world of politics, things are hotting up as party conference season concludes with the Conservatives' annual gathering in Manchester. Keir Starmer saw off the hecklers in Brighton to set out his personal brand to the watching nation at Labour conference on Wednesday and now we'll see what Boris Johnson and his team have to offer as they venture north. Ahead of conference, which starts this weekend, I've been speaking to Ben Houchen, the Conservative Mayor of the Tees Valley, who's speaking at seven events across the event and will be spelling out what the Tories need to do to cement their electoral gains in areas like his. When he explains why, he still thinks there's more for the government to do if former industrial areas like Teesside are to become Tory strongholds in the years to come. One thing that Teesside has become is it's become competitive.
1: This idea that just because of what happened in 2019 means that all of a sudden everybody's voting conservative and places like Teesside are converts to the conservative cause, it's just it's just not true. But those those votes are only lent. I've always I've always been bought into the idea that people aren't converts, they want to give him a chance, but if he gets it wrong and if we can't point to things that demonstrably show progress, people will, I
0: think start to be more creative with their votes. And with thousands of people descending on Manchester for the conference, I've been talking to Stephanie Newton of Marketing Manchester about the difference it could make for hard pressed businesses in the city centre.
2: And for the Greater Manchester and Manchester businesses to actually have still several thousand delegates descending on the city um, is a really welcome boost to our hotels, cafes, bars, restaurants over the over the four days that they're here.
0: But first, let's set the scene for what's coming up with two northern journalists who are no strangers to the highs and lows of conference season. As ever, our Westminster editor Dan O'Donoghue is with us. Welcome, Dan. Hi Rob. And it's great to be joined by Kate Proctor, the political editor of Politics Home and The House Magazine, who grew up in Penrith and came to Westminster via six years at Newspapers in the North. Kate, it's lovely to have you.
3: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: No problem at all. So before we turn to Tory conference, let's reflect a little bit on Labour and the four days on the south coast in Brighton. The consensus seems to be that despite the oddness up like uh, Middlesbrough MP Andy MacDonald leaving Cabinet in protest at uh, its policies, it was a generally positive conference for Labour. Dan, what was your takeaway from the whole thing?
4: As you said, it was a bit of a bumpy start with Angela Rayner's comments at one of the events on the Sunday night. I think it was. They all kind of blur into one the days now, but her kind of branding the Tories scum, which is obviously a bit problematic, given the party really do need to kind of target those red wall seats and, and win them back at the next general election. And then obviously we, we went into the start of the week with Andy Macdonald resigning again. Which is you know never good to have a shadow cabinet minister resign, even if you know it's not a household name. It's still you know not the best start to party conference. But you know in all, I thought it was you know quite a, a solid conference for Keir Starmer. The, the party seemed to draw a line under the Corbyn era. I thought his speech was. Although a bit long, I thought it was very solid. You know, he gave a good, good impression of who he was. He kind of hinted at some of the directions that Labour would go into. And, you know, he made play of wanting to kind of reach out beyond kind of Labour's traditional sports, certainly over the last couple of years. I think in all, I think it was a, a solid couple of days for Keir Starmer.
0: Yeah, on, on, you talk about Angela Rayner. I must admit, as an adopted Northerner, I was uh, interested to learn that it's apparently common practice to use the word scum as a term <laughs> of endearment in many <laughs> Northern towns. And actually, it's not... Really, an insult at all. So, I'm guessing both of you guys, you just refer to your friends as scum quite regularly, <laughs> or maybe you've had to drop that now you've moved to London.
3: Well, I'd say that at my school, the worst insult really when you're in year seven was to call someone a scummer. So, I'm not really sure that scum has uh, come full circle into a, a really nice term yet. I still think scum's pretty horrible. <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I think even uh, even her Labour colleagues were kind of distancing themselves from that, weren't they? It wasn't wasn't the best uh, terminology she could have used. Kate, would it be fair to say that Keir Starmer and Labour came out of the conference perhaps in a stronger position than they, they went into it?
3: Well, look, I think if you kind of like what Keir Starmer's is about, and if you didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, and if you want the party to have a complete break from him and move into a new direction, then I think you got all of that out of conference. I don't think Keir Starmer could have been clearer in the fact that, he is separating himself from the past. Just listening to the speech found some of it a little bit troubling, really, because Keir Starmer was there. He was in the shadow cabinet. He actually, you know, served under Jeremy Corbyn for a very long time. And I thought that sense of separation at some points felt a little bit off and also felt like it was slightly rewriting history because he talked about, you know, manifestos under his leadership, he'd never run a manifesto that wasn't serious for government. And yet he campaigned twice under Jeremy Corbyn. So, you know, I think if you are already on board with Starmer, like what he's about, then it was a great, great conference. I think you would just be so boosted and be feeling so happy. But I think it's true that for some of the membership who maybe felt that they sort of lent Starmer their vote in good faith, they might not feel so happy. And when I spoke to people in the hall afterwards, some of them were, it was really easy just to say, oh, it was great, loved it. It. But for some people, they were really, really on the fence. They weren't sure about what they'd heard. They didn't really love all of it. And they did say, very honestly, this party is going through a huge period of adjustment. And when I take that message back to my constituency Labour Party and tell them what conference was like, they said it might be, you know, a bit of a tricky one to to try and sell it to some members. But it was, you know, it was a really great conference in the terms of resetting an agenda and maybe from a political journalist point of view, understanding a bit more you know, about what Keir Starmer plans to do in the future, I guess that just has to be followed up now with some more concrete policy proposals and action, because, you know, I think the speech was a bit light on policy overall.
0: Yeah, I think that is a, certainly a fair criticism. And I, I mean, he, he relatively near the start of the speech, he spoke about Labour voters whose grandparents would be turning in their in their graves, at, at having voted Conservative and how he wanted to get those people back and that he, his party would never go into an election without a sort of costed manifesto, which felt like a kind of directed. At the country at large, but also at the sort of northern red wall voters who deserted labour but there wasn't a huge amount of actual policy, was there but presumably that will come at later conferences as they no point coming out with policies now that are just going to be pulled apart in the next two years?
3: That's what they think is a good idea. That's what they think is a good strategy. But having sat through the speech, as we've said, it was a really, really, really long speech. I actually do feel like you needed something a little bit more concrete. I actually thought Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves' speech was a really punchy one. She talked about wanting to be the first Green Chancellor, and she had the £27 a year spending on Green finance. I think she actually probably put forward a few more economic ideas that people can go away and digest and think about. So yeah, I mean, I guess you got a bit of policy from there. But honestly, I mean, what was it one hour 20 minutes sitting through that I honestly would have liked just a little bit more.
0: I think it was 90 minutes in total, it felt a long time, particularly as I was waiting until it had finished to put out our daily newsletter, which uh, ended up arriving about two hours late, because (laughs) it went on so long. Turning to conservative Conference. The backdrop, I guess, is quite interesting, isn't it, for Boris Johnson as well as he and his cabinet will be hoping to turn people's attention to to levelling up and what the government is going to do to make the lives better of the voters who turned to them in 2019. But you get the feeling that events might be dominated by external events, whether it's fuel shortages or Brexit or coronavirus, the things that the party doesn't want to talk about. I mean, Kate, what are you expecting to be the big stories from from Conservative Conference?
3: Well, I think what the Conservatives will try and do is talk relentlessly about their vaccine success and about levelling up. But, you know, you can't ignore the fact that there's a potential cost of living crisis coming this autumn and winter the government's just in, announced a new fund today actually ahead of conference which is for basically hard-up families to try and get some more financial support this comes after the universal credit uplift was removed so look it's a really really sort of fractious political environment actually going into co- the conservative party conference and i'm not sure that they're going to you know they're going to get some pretty challenging questions i think you know their members are never as um loud and noisy and protesty as the Labour ones. You're probably not going to see people heckled. You're not going to see really challenging questions directed to ministers giving speeches. But behind the scenes on fringes, there might be some pressure. I'm particularly interested in Lord Frost, the architect of Brexit. He's got a speech on Monday. And, you know, I think there's lots of questions to answer about how successfully he thinks Brexit is going. This HGV lorry driver shortage, that's a huge problem. And and the government says it's not to do with Brexit. And I think Lord Frost probably needs to use his speech to give some really detailed answers to people's concerns about whether Brexit is going well or not.
0: Dan, you and I, I suspect, will be lurking at the different fringe events on the lookout for any Northern lines. What are you expecting to
4: come up? Yeah, well, I mean, I think certainly we will, Rob. It's going to be a bit of a levelling up relay race for us, I think, because there's 22 events spread across the main stage and the fringes over these days that are linked to levelling up.
3: 22 events on levelling up?
4: There's 22 in total. I've gone through the agenda. (laughs)
3: Oh, my goodness.
4: (laughs) We're going to have plenty of fun running back and forth there, Robert. I think, obviously, Michael Gove's set-piece speech will be the big one to see kind of which direction he's going to take this whole agenda in. I mean, from my time covering Scottish politics, as I've said on this podcast before, you know, Michael Gove is someone who likes to get stuck in, and he is a a reformer, and he's someone who will want to put his stamp and mark on this policy so it will be interesting to see how he kind of approaches this. Aside from that I mean we've got on Wednesday morning the day of Boris Johnson's speech we've got Neil O'Brien who is currently writing the levelling up white paper and Simon Clark, a side MP he who's a minister in the treasury they'll be kind of hosting a panel event on the main stage specifically looking at levelling up that will obviously be an important one to look at but you know I certainly think that as we go through the conference I mean I think there'll be a lot of threads around this. I mean, there's one event that perhaps speaks to a bit of Tory angst about how much the targets in the Red Wall. I mean, one of the first events on levelling up is can Conservatives be loved in the South while levelling up the North? So, you know, I think that speaks to, to, to kind of a lot of Tory worries, but no, it should be a very interesting couple of days, I think.
3: Just one other thing that I think is probably going to be a, a talking point, at least at Tory Party conference, is gay and lesbian and trans rights. This seems to be bubbling away slightly in, in the background at the moment. There's one issue that the LGBT Alliance has been invited to conference that's already upset some young conservative activists who don't want, particularly, want that organisation to be there. They don't think they are supportive of trans issues. And uh, really importantly, actually, you have Carrie Johnson, the Prime Minister's wife. She's speaking at the LGBT Plus event. We hardly ever see her. She has been very very quiet. She's listed as being an ally to the LGBT community at Conservative Party conference. She's going to be giving a speech. I'll absolutely try and get into that room to see what she's going to say. But I think this is going to be quite an important moment really for the Conservative Party because it's going to be I imagine all about showing how inclusive they are. And Labour had a torrid time at conference actually discussing trans and LGBT rights and then you've got the Prime Minister's wife making an intervention on this. So um I'll definitely be cramming into that room to see what she has to say
0: lots to digest and plenty of warm white wine and curly sandwiches for us all to eat while we're doing it so should be lots of fun let's set the scene so thank you uh, Dan and Kate and now let's hear a bit from Ben Houchen One of the stories to come out of this week's Labour conference was the presence of a high-profile northern mayor, more popular than his own party, whose pronouncements on various subjects threatened to overshadow announcements on policy. There's probably not too many similarities between the so-called King of the North, Andy Burnham, and Ben Houchen, the Tory metro mayor of the Tees Valley. But as in Brighton, one of the more interesting subplots, I think, of the upcoming Conservative Party conference will be the warm welcome given to the politician who massively increased his majority at the last election and is being held as an example of how Boris Johnson's party can win again in the North. So, Ben Houchen, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on, Rob. Appreciate it.
0: No problem at all. So, you're coming over the Pennines to Manchester for conference i think you're speaking at a few different events over the course of the week what are going to be the issues you'll be wanting to talk about while you're here
1: well i think it's six or seven events that i'm speaking at and i think exclusively it's about the transition to net zero what that can mean for jobs and investment um is the government getting its policy right on net zero at the minute what can we do in the north and in places like teesside to be able to help the government deliver on its net zero agenda um and then the other Uh, fringe events and meetings that I'm speaking at are obviously on levelling up in general but you know it's all one and the same thing right because I think the north will end up powering the decarbonisation agenda for the UK um, and places like Teesside and Cheshire and Warrington and the Humber will be
0: the places where that's delivered. On the subject of the Conservative Conference I guess it's an interesting time to be having this conference in some respects because the government has a few battles on a number of fronts that are going to hit constituents in areas like yours quite hard obviously furlough ending and universal credit uplift ending, queues at petrol stations, you know, we're looking at maybe a, a resurgence of COVID over the winter, although we hope hope not. It, it, in some respects, it's going to be a challenging few months for the government. Do, do you worry that the switch to the Conservatives that were seen in 2019 and obviously has continued in the local elections in the tees valley that those gains could be eroded due to these sort of quality of life issues that are going to hit some areas of the north quite quite hard or other gains that you've made here to stay
1: well i mean i think there's not to be too disparaging rob but there's an incredible pessimism within the media at the minute that you know we're hearing a lot of this repetition at the moment about the the more difficult autumn and winter that's to come but that's not necessarily the case i mean there was a report out today that talks about the bouncing back of the leisure and hospitality sector in the northeast post furlough so yes obviously furlough is something that needs to be managed and unwound which is why it was tapered yes it's ending um this week but ultimately it's about well there are we're also at record job vacancies so there are other issues beyond furlough that are causing problems within the economy you know again we can talk about the fuel shortage which that I'm sure will come to an end that I think is partly self-driven as well as by other factors. But I don't necessarily think that the autumn and winter is going to be as difficult as people think that it is. But that's not to downplay that there are some issues that the government need to get ahead of to make sure that we're not in a place come December, January, February time. And, you know, they're not resolving issues that are currently preventable.
0: Well, we could have a, a general election in two, possibly three years' time. And I know you've spoken previously about the the need to show voters in areas like yours what the levelling up agenda means to them because I suppose the the landscape for the the next general election will be quite different to 2019 Brexit won't be such an issue you would imagine and you know Jeremy Corbyn his leadership won't be an issue anymore do do you think I guess you know it's still a little bit of time to to come until we face that but do you think the government is getting its policies right for areas like yours or or is there still more that it needs to do?
1: Yeah well I think again just to touch on those couple of points I mean I don't necessarily think that Jeremy Corbyn is is yesterday's man yet. There's obviously a huge problem that we're still seeing in the Labour Party in and in a, in a big schism between the, the far left of the party and the rest of the party. I mean, we've just had a local Labour Party uh, group leader on the local council resign because of the huge split that the conference has caused. So I don't think that's going away anytime soon. So I do think the Labour Party are a long way from really being a, a, a government in waiting. Um, But ultimately, yeah, I mean, absolutely, this conference needs to be about resetting the conversation post-COVID to what do we do to deliver on that 2019 manifesto. The government has been very clear, and Boris is completely committed to the levelling up agenda, and everybody buys into that. It's why he won the majority that he did, as well as um, delivering on Brexit. But as I've said very publicly many times now, the government needs to be able to show over the next two to three years, which, I mean, personally, I think that's probably why... An early election is unlikely because the prime minister and the government do need time to be able to get physical projects over the line. They need to be able to point the next election, and these things don't have to be finished right, but we need to be able to see that projects are starting and people can see what Leveling Up is leading towards. Because if we're honest with the public, and you know, I can't take credit for this as a as a fact, but Kevin Hollenrake, the MP for Thurston Malton, is uh, is a, a great advocate of Leveling Up, and you know, he likes to be able to come out and say which is true. The difference between the North and the South when it comes to GDP levels in relative terms is the same between East and West Germany at the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, that doesn't resolve itself over a, over a two, three year period. It doesn't resolve itself over a parliament. But what the public need, because they bought into this project, is they need signs, they need physical demonstrators that they are on the right track. So they can give the government the goodwill and the credibility that it needs to lend them their vote again for another term. Because ultimately, proper leveling up is a 15, 20, 25 year project, but you can't, you can't get the goodwill of the public over a 25 year period without delivering some quick wins and without showing demonstrable progress. Now, it's fair to say, I think if we're all honest and reasonable that the pandemic put paved to any government policy other than trying to deal with the pandemic at the time. But I'm you know, slightly more optimistic maybe than you, Rob. I think hopefully that COVID is behind us. And now the government need to use, I think, conference to reset that agenda
0: and recommit to it but also demonstrate how it's going to deliver on levelling up. Yes, perhaps I'm being unduly pessimistic about what's going to happen this winter. That's the, the cynical journalist in me. Would you say, based on that, that you consider Teesside to be a Tory area now? Is it is it a Tory stronghold or is it still very much in, in the balance?
1: No, no, it's absolutely not. I mean, one thing that Teesside has become is it's become competitive. So, you know, the days of old where, you know, you know, the the anecdote goes, you could put a red ribbon on a donkey and they vote for the Labour Party candidate. Those days have long gone. But this idea that just because of what happened in 2019 means that all of a sudden, you know, everybody's voting Conservative in places like Teesside are converts to the Conservative cause. It's just it's just not true. What we are, again, I always make the argument that yes, people want to believe in what the prime minister's saying; they're giving him the benefit of the doubt. They buy into his agenda because he speaks to people that live in places like Teesside. But those those votes are only lent. I've always I've always been bought into the idea that people aren't converts; they want to give him a chance. But if he gets it wrong, and if we can't point to things that demonstrably show progress, not necessarily completing the levelling up agenda, which won't be done by the time of the next election, people will, I think start to be more creative with their votes. And I don't necessarily think that means going back to Labour, but it means that we could lose support. So if we want to be able to continue to build on this, the government needs to show progress because people, you know, people want to be proven right, don't they? I mean, people voted Conservative for the first time. Nobody wants to be wrong. And so people do, I think instinctively, want to be able to point to something and say, I knew I was right to do that for the first time. You know, my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents have never voted Conservative, but I knew it was the right thing to do. Therefore, I'm going to do it again. But we need to give people that excuse, and we can only give people that excuse if we can demonstrate that we are making progress on the agenda, which over the next two or three years is going to ultimately define whether this government has been a success or not.
0: Now, the man who is in charge of the levelling up agenda for the government, uh, Michael Gove, the new levelling up minister, I, I saw that he his first sort of visit outside London was up to your patch last last week. He came to Works, didn't he, on, in, in Redcar and met with yourself and Jacob Young, the local MP. Does the fact that that was his first sort of levelling up visit, does that suggest that Teesside and you as Metro Mayor are kind of first amongst equals in terms of the regions, in the government's view, in, in part because you know, you're a, a Conservative Mayor who's doing well, you're getting sort of the treatment that your Labour counterparts elsewhere in the North might might not get?
1: No, I mean, I, I genuinely do rail against that, because the reason that the, the the Secretary of State, Michael Gove, came up to Teesside, as he said to the press when he was here, is that side is the shining example of what levelling up can be. And we are actually the poster child for it, because we are starting to deliver real change for local people. That's delivered through devolution, giving more local control to people to be able to take control of their destiny. I mean, myself... And the people that I work with and the people in my organisation who are local understand the challenges we face, understand the opportunities much better than any minister or civil servant in Whitehall ever could. And the government are proud to be able to point to this is how levelling up can work. I mean, you could say, why would they end up going to Greater Manchester at the minute when you know Andy hasn't delivered on any of his election pledges from 2017, or obviously he's only had a few months into his second term. You've got the absolute farce that is Greater Manchester Police. I mean, I think factually on the ground, when you look at what is deliverable and what positive difference are you making, it's objectively true to say, and I would say this, wouldn't I, because I am the Tees Valley Mayor, but the Tees Valley is making the most progress. And when we speak regularly to ministers and the number 10 policy unit and to the Prime Minister, the question is often posed, how do do we create more versions of Teesside across the country? Because we want other areas to progress the way that Teesside is for the whole of England. And hopefully, I think that's what we'll see later in the year with the levelling up white paper. And hopefully, we'll get a bit of a taste of that come the conference.
0: You were talking about the talks that you have with Number 10 and with with people in central government. Now, I know um, Michael Gove this week has a, a meeting with the the Metro mayors, the, the so-called M10, about levelling up. And I'm just wondering about your relationship with the other Metro mayors, because I think, you know, generally the Metro mayors in other parts of the north, they sort of work together, they have common cause, or they issue press releases together. I mean, do, do you consider yourself to be part of that? Or do you, you know, because you have a, such a good relationship with central government, you don't feel that you need to quite play things the way that they're playing it?
1: No, well I think there are two parts to that, that two answers to that question. One is um it feels like the antithesis of devolution to club together on a northern agenda to come up with a common theme. The issues that face T-side absolutely are not faced in Newcastle or Manchester or West Yorkshire. And indeed the vice versa, there are issues that are faced in Greater Manchester, Liverpool and elsewhere where they have mayors that are absolutely not problems in Teesside. So the whole point of devolution is there shouldn't be a one size fits all. So how could you ever deliver a single voice across the north of England saying you have the same challenges when that is literally the opposite purpose of devolution? I think secondly as well in a much more practical way rather than a an academic um, answer, you know, all of the other northern mayors are Labour um, they very do much move as a caucus. They use it for political pressure um, for lots of different reasons beyond the purposes of helping deliver for devolution in their own areas. And I'm just much more content in being able to deliver for local people. I mean, it's, it's also the nature of a mayor, right, if it's done properly. We have the benefit of being overly parochial. We don't need to care what's going on in Yorkshire or Manchester. I am elected to do the best for the people of Teesside. I'm not answerable to anybody. It's not like being a backbench MP where you've got a whip my sole responsibility is to deliver local people. And when I look at what other mayors do, um, particularly in the north, but actually across the uh, combined authorities, including London, across the country, this idea that we should club together and put pressure on government adds no value to the people of Teesside because it doesn't deliver anything for them. All it is is posturing and discussions about politics, actually. When you, get, when you drill down into the policies that they all issue joint press statements on, which, to be fair, by the way, Rob, I've never been asked to get involved in a press statement, they just don't bother contacting me, it's a Labour Party press release that comes out from Labour North, I just kind of think, well, that's not really what mayoralty should be there for. And I think what we've seen, certainly over the last two years, we've seen a much more politicisation of mayors and that Labour caucus that we didn't necessarily have over the
0: first two years of the mayoralties. I'll take it from that that you you won't be joining this Zoom chat with Michael Gove this week that the other mayors are on because, you have you know, in some respects it's relatively easy for you to contact Number 10 or central government without having to go through that method.
1: No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be joining the call and I'll be joining the call because the minister deserves the respect as the new Secretary of State to listen as a group. And also sometimes there has to be a counterbalance to the eight, nine other Labour mayors who come out with a standard line that isn't necessarily what I think the position should be. And I need to represent the the people of, of my area to make sure that policy benefits them the most. So I can't just vacate the playing field and leave them to it. But what I don't do is get involved in the publicity of national mayors because ultimately it's all just a political game to try and get themselves more exposure. What actual difference of anything that has been published by any of the mayors um, as part of this kind of collective caucus has actually ever delivered anything or made any real difference? You know, I would argue that you know playing the game having one-on-ones with ministers, developing policy and actual projects that you can talk about has been much more effective than this chest beating of you need to do X, Y and Z without actually having the substance, because that's why I tend to disengage with some of the other mayors much more than uh, than I previously did, because when you get behind the headline, there's no substance to them, which is when you analyse their, their manifestos and what they said they were doing the first four-year terms, never mind over the last three or four months since the second term, if you were to hold them to account in the same way that we do national governments, I can't think of any of them um, or very few of them that would have delivered any single one of the pledges, never mind their whole manifesto. And and I just think, well, you should be concentrating on that rather than necessarily getting your face on a press release because it makes you feel better, because it's a substitute for delivery, isn't it? It's the, it's the perception of activity without actual activity. And that's the thing in politics that's always frustrated
0: me, which is why I tend to steer away from it. The Housing Communities and Local Government Select Committee, which I guess will be renamed uh, relatively soon, has got a report out this week saying that Michael Gove should press ahead with further devolution uh, in England and examine the case for devolving greater powers in areas like health, housing, planning and education. What, what, what's your view on that? Do you, would, would you like more powers in those areas?
1: Well, I think the the first part of what you said is, is, I think, is vital for the government to continue to deliver up on its levelling up agenda. I mean, we do need much further devolution across the whole of England. We do need areas that aren't currently represented by combined authorities and mayors to have um, combined authorities and mayors in their areas as well, because a lot can be driven from the local area. So hopefully over the coming months and the levelling up white paper, the government will commit to full English devolution through the combined authority mayoral model. Um, There are some suggestions that might be tweaked and then we might see some county deals as well. Um, I've made some very strong feedback to government that they must include mayors because I do think what a directly elected mayor can give is beyond just the hard powers and money that they've got. It's the convening powers. It's the political mandate they've got. So I think it would be a mistake to deliver levels of devolution without having a mayor as part of that deal. And then secondly, for existing mayoralities, I think the first thing that we should be looking at, rather than just having a power grab left, right and centre, is to continue to deepen the powers that we currently have. Look, we've got some decent control over transports, transport authorities. We've got some good investment monies. There's things that we can do and have control over today. But I would love to see the levers that we currently have deepened because I think we could go much further with the remit that we've got. And the reason I say that's important, and I say that not really from the Tees Valley perspective, but if again, if you look across the mayors and the and the combined authorities that we currently have, I'll give you a very technical point, Rob, but I think it's a really it really encapsulates well the rhetoric compared with the reality. It is objectively true to say that the Tees Valley is the only combined authority in the country that will deliver and spend the transforming cities fund money in the timescales that were set out by government. Now that is a pot of money that was part of a four billion, more than a four billion pound pot of money half of it went to the combined authorities without having to bid for it. We were given an amount of money on a per head of population basis, and that was to go into big transport projects in our region to make a difference. Now, we had to discuss with government what that was gonna be spent on. We had that conversation, we committed to it, we've now delivered on it, and the government are happy that we're gonna spend that money in the timescales that that fund was supposed to be set out in. No other combined authority or mayor will spend the money that they've been given in the timescales. And every single one of them is asking government for an extension to that money. Now, my argument to both them and to government is, well, hang on, why would you give them more power and money when they're not even using the powers and money that you've already given them? Surely there there, there is an issue in the way that they're being run or constituted that means they've got to spend the money and use the powers that they've currently got effectively before you give them more. Otherwise, you're creating bloated bureaucracies that are ineffectual let's make sure that these things are fighting fit before you give them even more powers because again that's a great example they've had that money for now three years they're not spending it they're asking for extensions my question to all of them would be why are you not spending this money in the timescales that has been given because every time i turn on the telly and i hear steve rotherham or andy burnham complain that they haven't got enough money i know that they haven't spent the money that they've already been given so i kind of question this idea that we need to go further and faster on a broader level what I think we need to be is better combined authorities. And that could lead to some slight like, tweaks to, because it may be, for example, Rob, without going into too much detail, it may be that the relationship between government and those combined authorities in the way that some of those powers work might need tweaking. But that's not about more powers. That's about making sure the powers that they've currently got are more effective to deliver better outcomes
0: for local people. Ben Houchin, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. So that was a punchy interview by Tees Valley Mayor Ben Houchen and we put some of his assertions to Andy Burnham's office, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, who came back and said, Despite this inaccurate outburst, we will welcome the Mayor and his Conservative colleagues to Manchester for their conference next week, where they will see delivery on a scale not matched anywhere else in the country outside of London. Andy Burnham will make a constructive offer to work in partnership with the government on a levelling up deal for Greater Manchester. So there we are. So now let's hear a bit from Stephanie Newton of Marketing Manchester. Thousands of people will descend on Manchester over the coming days as the Conservative Party Conference returns to the city for the first time in two years, with COVID-19 meaning last year's event had to be held in virtual form. With protests expected throughout the four days of the event, The Manchester Central Convention Complex and Midland Hotel will become like an island within the city centre as part of one of the largest 24-hour security operations in the UK but as well as being a magnet for demonstrations political conferences also inject millions of pounds into the city's economy which will be welcomed more than ever given Covid-19's impact on tourism leisure and hospitality this is the 10th party conference to be held in Manchester and before Covid large-scale events such as party conferences worth around £862 to the Greater Manchester economy. So to hear more about what the annual Tory shindig will mean for the local economy, let's hear from Stephanie Newton, Head of Business Tourism at Marketing Manchester, the agency charged with promoting Greater Manchester on the national and international stage. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: No worries at all. So I was reading that in 2019, the Conservative Party conference was worth around Thirty-two million pounds, and the figure for this year is expected to be a bit lower at around 18 million. I mean, are you expecting things to be quite different this year because some people might still be a bit put off by COVID, or is it, is it still going to be a big, a big event as far as the Manchester economy is concerned?
2: It's still going to be a really important event as far as the Manchester economy is concerned. Um, We've had 18 months of no business visits and events really being in the sector and the fact that we are expecting delegate numbers to be somewhat lower than they were to 2019, um, that's natural. There's still a little bit of uh, reticence in, in delegates wanting to travel but for those people that are here then we're going to ensure that they have a really enjoyable and productive conference and for the Greater Manchester and Manchester businesses to actually have still several thousand delegates descending on the city um, is a really welcome boost to our hotels, cafes, bars, restaurants over the over the four days that they're here.
0: Yeah. So the the businesses that you talk to with your agency, they're they're all pretty excited by the by the prospects of a big influx of, of people coming in.
2: Really excited. And also this this isn't the first large scale conference that we've welcomed back. We had uh, Chartered Institute of Housing at the beginning. Of September, which again saw um, several thousand delegates, and that actually allowed um, the sector to sort of kick themselves back into gear as well. Um, so to have this so quickly on the back of it is a really welcome, uh, welcome thing.
0: I know that you know across the north of England and you know the country at large, city centres and town centres, the extent to which they've been able to recover from the pandemic in terms of footfall has varied quite a lot. I mean, how has Manchester City Centre? been doing generally since the pandemic. Have levels of people coming in returned to what they were in sort of 2019?
2: No, not 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 fully. Um where we are at the moment is leisure business has has come back and with the um introduction of live events and sport um during the weekends and also theatres opening, then we're not too far off where we were pre-pandemic levels at the weekends. Midweek business um, is still um, fairly slow so the corporates haven't returned business visits and events haven't returned fully um, so this conference particularly is a real welcome because it'll be that midweek boost that'll be really nice to see and um, having said that um, midweek business is starting to pick up probably month on month we've had about a 10% increase in footfall coming into the city since 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 about june
0: so presumably, like you say, the Friday, Saturday nights kind of take care of themselves to some extent in terms of people coming in. But it's those, yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday where things are a bit quieter, which is where conferences like this really make a make a difference.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's this is key um, to actually getting the um, the footfall back up to where it was pre pandemic levels. Is that corporate business and that conference business returning?
0: I. would assume that Tory conference, there'll be obviously a lot of people in the convention centre at the Midland Hotel, but they'll be sort of dispersing into other parts of the city as well. What types of places tend to do best from Conservative Conference? It's presumably bars, pubs, restaurants, those kind of venues
2: yeah it's a real mixture so bars pubs restaurants they'll be they'll be buzzing um the beauty of manchester is because it is such a compact city and the convention quarter is so compact that whether you sort of come out of the convention centre and walk 5 minutes down the road or 10 minutes down the road you're going to find a network of people um that you can that you can talk to and do business with so it's it's a real mixture the ca- the cafes will be busy the uh coffee bars will be busy um and uh yeah it's uh, that those those four days um, across the city, across all types of businesses, will be will be busy.
0: Is Marketing Manchester doing anything specific to take advantage of the people arriving in, in, in Manchester?
2: Marketing Manchester is, is beginning to launch um, a delegate welcome. We're in, we're in the early stages of that. So there will be uh, welcome messages on, on the transport networks, on uh, within hotels that the, that the delegates are staying in. Lots of businesses, uh, bars, restaurants put on promotions around that time to try and encourage footfall into their businesses
0: as well. To give you an opportunity for a little plug at the end of the interview if, if people not familiar to Manchester are coming in they want to know the best things to do around the city what would you what would you advise
2: we would direct them to visitmanchester.com um, and that will show delegates everything that there is um, that's on in the city during the time that they're here best places to eat best bars to go to um, and they'll they'll find all the information that they need on there
0: Stephanie Newton from uh, Marketing Manchester thank you very much thank you Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts, like this one. See you next week.
2: The Reset Room, a brand new lifestyle and mental wellness podcast, is being launched by National World and Laudable Podcasts. Join me, Kelly Crichton, with resident experts Amina Walker and Kay Woodburn, as we aim to equip you with the tools you need to succeed and to answer your questions on your journey to fulfillment. Each week, we'll cover specific topics relating to life, performance and pressure.
3: Lockdown has truly messed with our
2: heads. There is no doubt about that. But with any shakeup, there's always opportunity.
3: There's nothing that I do as a mindset coach that is unique to one group of people. You know, Maloney used to say, there's nothing so funny as folk. And actually I think she had a point because we're all so different and we're all multi-layered.
2: We need a reset, work needs a reset. We had this huge reset with lockdown and the pandemic and we're at this turning point.
3: If your best friend spoke to you the way you're speaking to yourself right now, would you still be friends?
2: For more on the Reset Room, follow at Laudable Pods and at National World.